in the book of Philippians. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Philippians. We were in Galatians the last several months. So if you keep going to the right, you got Galatians, Ephesians, and then Philippians. Chapter 1, verse 1 is where we're going to begin our study here this morning. And if you're new to Calvary or visiting with us, we go through the books of the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse. So we'll go through this epistle for the next several weeks and looking forward to it. One of the reasons why I think the Lord put this really on my heart to go through the book of Philippians because one of the themes that we'll talk about and see very clearly is joy. And I think that perhaps that uh, a number of Christians, uh, and it can happen to any of us, and it can happen to me, and there's been seasons where I've lost my joy. Because the circumstances of life, because we see all the things around us, the things that are taking place, um, the, the difficulties that come to us, uh, we can lose our joy. And Paul here, as he's writing this letter, is writing in a, a time that was very, very difficult and uncertain. But yet he expresses joy unspeakable. I really believe, I've already, uh, this morning, the first two services, people were saying, you know, I was really blessed by the six verses that we went over this morning because this is the Lord speaking to us. And he desires for us to have that joy unspeakable in our lives, even in the difficulty. So I think, and I believe that we're going to be tremendously blessed going through this epistle. So Lord, as we come this morning, we ask that you would just um, take your word and work it in our hearts. Lord, as we see the things around us, the difficulties, the uncertainty, we see even the images of an earthquake that killed tens of thousands of people in an instant. And Lord, uh, we, we can wrestle with these things. But maybe there's an earthquake in somebody's life right now. Or there's darkness or loss or difficulties. The weight of, of the cares of life, just tiredness. And Lord, we can lose that joy that you desire to put into our hearts. So we ask that you would, Lord, just minister to us, not only as we look at this epistle reading these words, this is God breathed, put to the page. It's for us today. But Lord, we want these things worked out in our lives. And so, Lord, we come to you as a people needing your help to be built up in your word, to rest in your love for us. So bless this time in the study of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 2,000 years ago, the city of Philippi was located in the northern region of Greece, the province of Macedonia. It was near the Aegean Sea, near what was called the Ignatian Way, which was a strategic Roman highway. And Philippi was important to the Roman military because it was a key, it was an important station for the military to defend the, the, any invaders that would come from the north. The city itself was said to be a miniature likeness of Rome. Now Philippi was named after Alexander the Great's father, and there was a lot of retired, if you would, Roman officers and personnel that lived there in the city of Philippi. That's why when you go to Acts chapter 16, Paul and his missionary journeys, that he would go into a city and there was a synagogue that was there. He would go into the synagogue first. He would preach Christ to them. Usually he ended up leaving and then going to the Gentiles afterwards. Here in the city of Philippi, because 
it was so many Roman citizens that lived there. There was no synagogue that was there. And just about everyone who called Philippi their home had that status of being a Roman citizen, which was a privileged status. Now, Paul's going to remind the believers there at Philippi at this time, and he reminds us that the privileged status that we have is far superior. That is, we are citizens of heaven. The apostle here had a very special relationship with this church. The epistle is filled with appreciation, is filled with fondness to them. He does not develop really any doctrinal point here that they're an heir of. He doesn't have to defend his apostleship to this church like he had to to some of the other churches, such as Corinth. And one of the reasons that he writes this letter to them is to thank them for their support that they gave to him. They had sent financial support several times, and they were a church that was not wealthy. Matter of fact, we're going to read about Papaditis. Perhaps he was the pastor of the church of Philippi, but he made that long journey from Philippi to Rome to see Paul, and he would bring that support. He ministered to my needs, more than just financially, but in other ways as well. At the end of the epistle, Paul will give specific thanks to this church that gave to him freely and willingly, and out of their poverty, and even out of their persecution. He would use the church of Philippi as an example how you and I are to give. He, he would write to the church of Corinth down in Achaia, in that region. He said that you're to give cheerfully and freely and willingly, and uh, they would give in that way, the, the church of Philippi. Look to the churches in Macedonia as an example of the way that you are to give. But also we know that as the Propoditus came to speak with Paul, there in Rome, as he's writing this letter, that as you tell of the affairs of the church, Paul is dealing with some division that's going on in the church. Uh, there was conflict that was going on that he will name two individuals that was beginning to affect the church. And so he's going to write about at the end of chapter one, he says, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. Be of one mind, one spirit, coming together. He, in chapter 2, writes about how there is to be unity, and the way to unity is through humility. You can't have unity if there isn't humility, if there isn't a looking out not only for your own interests, but for the interests of others. He will write, don't do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit. But in loneliness of mind, let's esteem others, you know, better than ourselves. We're to be other-centered. So all these things that we're going to look at that are very important for us as, as we uh, look to the words of what the Lord would write through Paul the Apostle. So as we continue this letter here, we start this letter. Let's read in verse 1 of Philippians chapter 1 that Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. As we begin to look at this letter penned by the Apostle Paul, it's clear as he would say Paul and Timothy, in ancient times they would put their names who wrote these letters at the beginning of the letters. That's all an epistle is, is a letter to this church of Philippi. We as we write letters today and very few times do we write letters. You know, we're in a day and age where we email and we text everything. We usually, though, if we write a card or a letter to somebody, we put our names at the end of what we write. 
write. Here he's, he introduces himself as the writer, uh, the human instrument used of the Lord to write these words down. And as we look at this, Paul writing this letter to the Christians there at the Church of Philippi, I think it's going to be helpful to get some background that's going to lead up to Paul writing this letter. And I don't mean to bore you with some history and the background, but to tie everything together, I think it's helpful to understand you know, the things that are taking place here to, to get a better understanding of this. These are real people. This is a real church that was taking place. Paul here writing from Rome. But we do know that after the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord, about 14 years after that, that Paul began his ministry to the Gentiles. That would be about 47 A.D., And Paul, in that first missionary journey with Barnabas, you read about in Acts chapters uh, 13 and 14, he would establish those churches of, you know the answer, of Galatia, because we just spent several months in the book of Galatians. So he would establish the churches of Derby and Lystra and Iconium. Paul, after that first missionary journey, him and Barnabas would go back to Antioch. That was the main church that was kind of the headquarters for the Gentile Christians. And we know that Paul would be there, given a report. Acts chapter 15, he would go to Jerusalem to meet with the the leadership there, with John and James and, and those guys in Jerusalem, to deal with this whole issue about what are we going to tell the Gentile believers Uh, as they're getting saved. Do they have to be circumcised? Uh, Do they have to keep the law of Moses? And we know what the answer is. And again, we discuss in details going through the book of Galatians as they were dealing with the Judaizers, with the legalists that were coming in and saying that it's not by faith alone or Christ alone, but you have to be circumcised. You have to keep the law of Moses. So after Acts chapter 15, and we know that we're saved by faith alone and Christ alone, that Paul in chapter 16, he would begin his second missionary journey. He's no longer traveling with Barnabas. He takes Silas with him. And they went to revisit the churches there of Galatia. And as he is there, he recognizes this young man that has the calling of God on his life. And his name was Timothy. And he says, Timothy, come join us on these missionary journeys. So now you have Silas, you have Timothy, you have Paul the Apostle. They go up to Troash. As they're there, Paul wanted to go up into Asia, but the Lord did not allow him to go. He has this vision. It's a vision of a Macedonian man that says to him, come over here and help us. And Paul knew that he was to go to Greece, to Philippi. And it's interesting, as you look at the pronouns, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, it goes from they to all of a sudden we. So we know that Dr. Luke joined them on at that time as they would go to Philippi. And as they're there in Philippi, of course, that begins his second missionary journey. And in that, we see that he would go down to the river. And there's no synagogue that is there. He would meet a woman named Lydia, a seller of purple, and she would get saved. She invited Paul and Silas and, and Luke and Timothy to stay with her. Well, eventually, at that time, as they're staying there in Philippi, Paul and Silas are thrown in jail. They're beaten by rods. And we know the familiar account, many of you do in Acts chapter 16, of the Philippian jailer. You see it's midnight. 
They're black and they're blue and they're bleeding from the beating that they took. Paul and Silas, they're chained in shackles behind bars there in Philippi and they're singing praises to the Lord. And as they're singing praises to the Lord, all of a sudden there's this earthquake and the prison door opens up the shackles fall off of them. The Philippian jailer thinks that everybody has escaped and he knows he's in big trouble if that's the case. So he takes a sword and he's going to take this sword and he's going to thrust it through himself. And Paul cries out and says, don't do it, that we're all here. And the Philippian jailer says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul said that believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your household. And by the way, just a little side note, that could it be, we don't know for sure, that the man that, that Paul saw in that vision in Troash of the Macedonian man saying, come over here, was the Philippian jailer. It's just a suggestion. So they would establish the church of Philippi, the first church established on the continent of of Europe, they continue with their missionary journey. The Acts chapter 17 and 18 tells us about it. They travel throughout the provinces of not only Macedonia, but Achaia, establishing the churches of Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth would be established at that time. And it would be several years later, as Paul's finishing his third missionary journey, that Paul would go to Jerusalem. He would be arrested in Jerusalem. He was accused wrongly of taking Gentiles to the temple. The whole city rioted around Paul, and they rushed to the temple, and they were going to kill him. Well, he's taken by the Romans. He's arrested by the Romans, and that would begin a series of trials that Paul would go through. He would end up going to Caesarea, that seacoast city, and Caesarea was the Roman headquarters for that area in Israel. That's where the governmental officials lived, a lot of them. That's where the military officials lived there in Caesarea. So he's there for about two years. He's trying to, to, to you know, move forward in all of this, and he's there not knowing what's going to happen. Finally, after two years, he's standing before Agrippa in the amphitheater there. And Paul was a Roman citizen. He says, I appeal to Caesar. He could do that. They said to Caesar, you shall go. The last two chapters of the book of Acts gives the account of his voyage to Rome. And he's in a, a, a storm. They're in a storm on the boat. They, the boat falls apart. He washes up on the island of Malta. He's bitten by a poisonous snake. Eventually he would get there. But he has gone through a very difficult time for the last couple of years where he would then go to Rome. And he is there under house arrest. He's chained to a Roman guard. 24-7, he's waiting to go on trial in his appeal, and he's going to stand before the emperor of Rome. His name was Nero, Caesar Nero. And if any of you know about Caesar Nero historically, he was a very cruel man. He was one that killed many Christians. He burned them at the stake. He would have them tortured in, in very, very mean ways and, and very terrible ways. He would take Christians and sew them up in animal skins and throw them out into the wilds for the wild animals to tear at. He went insane. He burnt the city of Rome down and then he, he blamed the Christians. This is who Paul's waiting to stand before in his appeal. And as he's under house arrest for about two years and during that time the apostle 
He puts pen to parchment and he writes what is known as the prison epistles. That would include the book of Philemon, the book of Ephesians, the book of Colossians, and this book, this letter, Philippians. So this book penned by Paul the Apostle, and now the theme of Philippians, as I've already said, we're going to see very clearly is joy. And throughout this short letter, he mentions his joy in the Lord, and he mentions his joy for the believers there at Philippi. And this letter is for you and for me to help us know how it is that we can move forward in life and in our walk with the Lord in joy as well. He uses that word joy or rejoicing some 19 times in these four chapters here. Now, keep in mind, we've discussed this before. I know that many of you know this, that joy is superior to happiness. And we're all for happiness. We all want happiness. But a lot of times what the message can be in the church and those who are well-known pastors will stand up and say, God just wants you to be happy. Well, he wants us to have joy. And you see, happiness is dependent upon circumstances of life, the circumstances that come into our life. Like, for example, this evening, many of you are going to watch the big game on TV. So if the team that you're rooting for wins, you'll be happy, right? If the team that you're rooting for loses, you're not going to be happy. Maybe at work, you're waiting for this promotion to come, and you're really counting on it and looking forward to it. And if it comes, you're happy about it. If it doesn't come, you're not happy about it. So happiness is dependent upon circumstances in life. And happiness can disappear very quickly when we go through difficulties, when we go through hardships, when we go through the disappointments. Now, joy, listen, is something that is much, much deeper. Because its basis is found in Christ. And we're going to see that Paul will refer to our Lord Jesus 40 times in this epistle. We know that Jesus would say to his disciples in John's gospel in chapter 15. That you are to abide in my love. As you abide in my love, my joy may remain in you. And know that my joy may be full in you. Just that fullness of joy. And it is the Lord's desire that we be full of joy in the Lord, in our hearts, a joy unspeakable in whatever circumstances that we find ourselves in. It would be the uh, sweet psalmist of Israel, David, that in Psalm 16, that he would write that in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand is pleasures evermore. When Paul, when he was ending that third missionary journey, was traveling to Jerusalem where he would be arrested, he would stop to address the Ephesian elders for the last time. And in Acts chapter 20, he would say to them that I know chains and tribulations await me. The spirit of God has testified to me of that. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry I've received from the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he would go to Jerusalem and he would begin that series of legal nightmares that lasted two years in prison in Caesarea, two years under house arrest, uncertain what's going to happen. Is he going to be put to death by Caesar Nero at this time? Is he going to be released chained to a Roman guard? And you would think, listen, that if there was a time that he had a right 
or at least we would understand if this letter was heavy and depressing and full of murmuring and complaining about his situation, that this would be it. And I've got to be honest with you. If it was me writing this letter, I think there would be plenty of murmuring and complaining and and all of that. And we would understand if Paul would do that. But what we see here is as we go through this epistle, as it unfolds before us in the next couple of weeks, just the opposite takes place. Because what happens is that Paul's joy and his rejoicing comes forth because he is running his race with joy. He demonstrated joy in Philippi at the midnight hour. He's rejoicing in the Lord, him and Silas. That amazes me. Black and blue and bloodied. And they're singing praises to the Lord. And maybe you're here this morning. And maybe you feel like it's the midnight hour. That it is very, very dark. And you're chained to the difficulties or the losses or the circumstances that just are very, very hard. And we learn from Paul that in those times that we can rejoice in the Lord because he's still with us. And as we begin to rejoice in the Lord, he will say always, again I say rejoice, that we see that those things that that come into our lives that defeat us and depress us and gives us a sense of just having no hope, hopelessness, it begins to, to lose its grip on us. Uh, those chains and the prison doors open up. Those things that hold us into captivity and bondage. It's a real key for you and for me to go through this epistle and know that the Lord wants to work that joy in us, whatever it is that we're going through, because we all have a race that we're going to run. And I know that as we've been speaking about these things in our ministry class, matter of fact, this Saturday we're going to talk about having joy in ministry. For me, I can lose that joy very quickly. In the, in the difficult times, in the hard times, the uncertain times, in the challenging times. And I want to have that joy. And I believe every single person has come through the services this morning that you want joy. You want joy in your heart. We want the joy of the Lord. We don't want to go through life just being ones that murmur and complain and, and upset and all of this, but underneath the difficulties and the challenges that we face, that we have the joy of the Lord, and we're going to learn how it is that we can have joy. We know that it's abiding in Christ. In your presence is fullness of joy. And we're going to see that Paul demonstrates that and, and expresses how we can have joy as we run our race. No matter what it is that we're chained to, what it is that imprisons us externally, the message will be in all that in our hearts, we can have joy, just a sense of peace and thankfulness that we have Jesus, a sense of calmness and rest as we rest in the love of Jesus Christ. You see, as we remember that we are to abide in this love, will you always remember this? That the Lord loves you more than you can ever possibly imagine. And that's the reason why he went to the cross. Because of his love for you. Not that he just loved humanity as a whole. He did. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But he loved 
you and he loves you now. And his love remains. And as he went to that place of execution, and as he was pinned to that Roman gibbet, and as he's bleeding into the ground and he's hanging between heaven and earth, he did it because he loves you so much to give you hope. He did the work. Never forget that. And as I go back to the cross and I see his love for me, it begins to bring that joy back into my life and into my heart as well. So always remember the love of Jesus Christ. And Paul, he reminds us of that. So in this epistle, it's going to be one that greatly uplifts us and encourages us as we go through this. So we read again, Paul and Timothy, bondservants servants of Jesus Christ, a common introduction that Paul would use in writing to the churches, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Now, when you go to the Old Testament, you can go to number six, Exodus 21. You can go to Deuteronomy chapter 15. And a Hebrew slave, they were to, to be released after six years. In the seventh year, the master was to release that Hebrew slave. But if that servant, if that slave said, listen, I want to stay with my master. I want to serve him the rest of my life. He's been good to me. I, I want to be his slave for as long as I live. He would then be called a bondservant. What would happen is they would interview him, the elders of the, you know, that were in that area, in that village, and they made sure that he wasn't forced into it. And then if he is saying, I want to remain a servant to my master for the rest of my life, that they would put his ear against the doorpost and they would took an owl and they would pierce his ear. And then you were marked. You were then called a bond servant. And here is the Apostle Paul. He would refer to himself as a doulos, a bond servant. Freely I serve my master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because I love my Lord. I want to serve him all the days of my life. I, I want to stay close to him. and Be faithful to him. So the question is, do you see yourself as a bondservant? Lord, I want to serve you all the days of my life. I want to walk with you and please you with my life. Because I love you. I love you, Lord. And you've been so good to me. You've saved me. You've forgiven me. You've given me a new heart. And I want to serve you all the days of my life. So a bondservant is to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Uh, these believers are called saints. You're known as a saint. A biblical definition is one who's a believer in Jesus Christ. And the word here in the Greek actually means those set apart. You believers at Philippi and for you at Calvary Chapel that you've been set apart. Just as we believers, that we are ones that are known as saints, were set apart for his purposes, to live for him, not for the world. And with the bishops and deacons, verse 1 in this opening statement and greeting, bishop epikapos in the Greek, which means to look over or upon. It's an overseer. And the term bishop is synonymous with the term or position of elder or pastor. When Paul was addressing the Ephesian elders for the last time in Acts chapter 20, in verse 28, he would say to them that therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So bishop, to me, describes his responsibility. It means an overseer. An elder describes the spirituality of the man. 
The qualification of an elder is to be a man of maturity in the things of the Lord and how he leads not only in the church, but listen, but also in his family. And that is very clear as you read 1 Timothy chapter 3 and as Paul writes to Titus. We know that the word bishop, again, his responsibilities overseeing the flock. Elder describes the spiritual maturity of the man. He's to have that maturity. And then there's the pastor that describes the ministry because he shepherds the flock. He feeds the flock. He tends and cares for the sheep. So the responsibility of an overseer, the man is to be of maturity, an elder. And the ministry, me as a pastor teacher, is to feed you the word of God, to feed you in the environment of love to tend and to care. And then he lists the deacons. Now the deacons, we know from Acts chapter 6, were ordained for them to serve tables, to serve the widows. So the deacons were one that helped in the practical ways in doing ministry. It kind of reminds me a little bit, uh, I like to think of the deacons as the Levites of the Old Testament. Now in 1 Chronicles, when David was given the blueprints to the temple. It would be his son Solomon that built the temple, but David's getting everything ready to go. And he makes the blueprints. He, he divides up the priests, the magicians, the gatekeepers, and the Levites. There were three families of the Levites that you read about in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Numbers. And they had responsibilities in helping the priests in, in their duties. And in the book of First Chronicles, it says the Levites who did all manner of work. They did all kinds of ministry, helping and serving. And, and it reminds me of the deacons of the New Testament, serving in practical ways. So many of you help in practical ways. Such a tremendous blessing. So he, he opens this letter to the saints, to the elders, to the bishops, uh, or to the deacons of, of Philippi, verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace, that dual greeting that Paul so often used in his letters. And grace, you know what it means, the unmerited favor of God. And as we experience the grace of God, then we have peace. We have peace with God as we come to Christ. But he also desires to work in us the peace of God. And Paul will write about that in chapter 4. But we cannot have the peace of God until, first of all, we receive the grace of God. And that's why I believe you always see it in that order. It's always grace first, then peace. You never see it the other way around. And it comes from the uh, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And after his greeting, he begins to address them, verse 3. That I thank God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. So it's been almost 10 years as Paul's writing this letter from prison since he first brought the gospel to Philippi. It was during his third missionary journey, five years after he established the church, he went back to Philippi. He visited them. Now he's in jail. He's writing to this church, and he says, I thank God for you as I remember you, and I am always praying for you, making requests for you with joy. A couple things that, that I think is worth considering and even applying in our own lives. That first of all, to be thankful for one another. I pray that we are. I know that I'm thankful for you. I see it as such a, a privilege 
to pastor this church, to be with you on Sunday mornings, to be with you during the week. I never want to take that for granted. It's such a blessing to be with the brethren, and I am truly thankful for this church, and I'm thankful for the family that he's put together here. And listen, we are not a perfect church, and we never will be. But he's put us together as the family of God to do the work of the Lord, to be a light to Greeley, to, to Colorado, to our nation, even to the world. And I hope and pray that you are thankful for the brethren that are here, the relationships that you're establishing, and, and as we pray for each other, as, as, as we encourage each other, as we grow in the word of God together. Paul was thankful, and he would write in his letters about how he just had gratitude and thankfulness in his heart. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, he would write, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God. He didn't say for everything. He said in everything. And in this epistle, he reminded us that we are to be thankful You see, Paul isn't bitter. As I said, he isn't complaining in his letter. He was thankful. And in our own lives, that we can be thankful, even in the trials and the difficulties. We can be thankful in all things that we go through in life. Because we have the Lord, and he's with us. He said to his disciples, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. And he hasn't left you. He promises he'll never leave us or forsake us. And his promises are true for us. I've been thankful for you from the first day until now. For these ten years for the fellowship that we have in the gospel. And I believe that as we read these verses, it shows us the key to having joy. And one of the keys that we see here right off the bat is that we are to be thankful in the Lord. And that will lead to the joy of the Lord. Listen, write this down or remember this. You will not have joy if you don't have a thankful heart. You will not have joy, any of us, if we don't have a thankful heart. And I can't do my ministry with joy. I can't continue my race with the, in the Lord in running my race for him. I can't do it with joy if I'm not thankful. And how the Lord has blessed me and he saved me. What he means to me. What he's given me to do. I'm very grateful to the Lord. We have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So as we continue here, which leads to we can gain from these verses, and that is, and then he became prayerful with joy. So let me ask you this, and I need to ask myself this. Does it give us joy to pray for others? Or do we have the attitude of, well, I guess I'll pray for them. I guess, you know, I don't really have much time, almost like it's a burden, As we pray for people, as we are praying for those who are linked to you in your life, family members, as we are praying for the brethren here, God begins to stir your heart. He begins to stir your heart towards people. So 
we are to be thankful. We're to pray with joy. And then verse 6, the third thing, the key to having joy is being confident. And we'll end here of this very thing that he has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul was confident, like he was saying, I'm so sure of this. There is no doubt about it. I'm convinced that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. What work is that? The work of salvation. The, the work of you continuing in the fellowship of the gospel. And I find great comfort in this verse. What God has begun in us, he will bring it to completeness. When it comes to Christ-likeness, the work of God, what he's doing through me and in me. God doesn't just look at me, and I have felt this way at times in my life. The Lord must look at me and think, I'm so disinterested in you, Jeff. I'm just, I'm going to move on. I'm done with you. Uh, you know, um, I'm going to move on to those who are more gifted, those who are smarter, those who got their act together, whatever it might be. He doesn't lose interest in you. And I know that this verse has brought great comfort to me because I used to kind of think, even in my ministry, that, okay, Lord, I'm going to strive and I'm going to strain and I'm going to do this and, and, and maybe at the end of the year there will be a valuation, you know. You did poorly here, you did, you know, bad here and all these things. But... I know this, that I can rest in, that he who has begun a good work will bring it to completion. That he'll perfect that which concerns me as I just yield to you, Lord. As I put myself into your hands. That you will complete what you're doing. And I don't have to fret. I don't have to worry. I don't have to wonder what he is doing. He will complete it. It's interesting, in chapter 2, it says that that Paul writes that you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's the human responsibility. And right next to it, he says, and God works in you both the willing to do of his good pleasures. So we're thankful for one another. We are to be prayerful with joy and confident in his working in our lives that he will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So I don't have to sweat or wonder if the whole thing's going to fall apart. But Lord, you're so good and you're faithful to see us to completion and what you are doing in my life. So Father, we thank you. We thank you so much. We thank you for these words, the opening of this, this epistle. And Lord, I just want to pray for those who may be here at this service that honestly, in their hearts, and Lord, you want us to be honest. You know our hearts anyway. That they can say, I've lost my joy. Or Lord, it's it just, I've left it. And I need to come back to it. Because you want to work that joy in my heart and in my life. I've been murmuring. I've been complaining. I've stopped being thankful. I stopped praying for others. And have them confident that you're working. You haven't abandoned me. And you will complete that work. As we come, Lord, and confess it. That you are compassionate, merciful, forgiving. 
but Lord, that we can set our eyes on you, even as the author of Hebrews says, fixing our eyes on Jesus as we run our race with endurance. And Lord, that you would put that joy back into our hearts, that we be thankful in all things. Be thankful for the body of Christ, for one another. So much of the world doesn't have that. Lord, I pray that we would be praying for others with joy, not as just some burden. But Lord, that we would do it knowing that you desire to work. We get to present them to you. And Lord, that we would be confident that you're going to finish the work that you've begun in us, that we can rest in your love, trust in your faithfulness. But also, I just want to pray this morning for anyone who may be here that you've never come to Christ for salvation, that Jesus did do the work. He completed it on the cross for you to come to repent, the Bible says, to repent of your sins, to repent of the direction you're going and turn to Christ. You see, today is the day of salvation. We're reminded almost all the time of the frailty of life. Tens of thousands of people lost their lives in an instant in an earthquake. They weren't expecting it. Other tragedies and things that happen. So knowing that tomorrow's a promise to any of us, today is the day of salvation. And I pray that if you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus and asked for forgiveness and called on the name of the Lord, that you would do that today. That you would realize that you're a sinner in need of the Savior Jesus who died for you. That's why you went to the cross. And he's motivated by his love for you. That you can come right now. Call on the name of the Lord. You can pray sincerely that Jesus, I come and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I'm a sinner. And I turn to you now. I turn away from the world. I turn to you and ask for forgiveness. And I ask that you would sit upon the throne of my life as Lord and Savior for all the days of my life. I want to know you and walk with you. Lord, I thank you that you accomplish the work of making atonement for my sins on the cross and you give me now living hope through your resurrection. Thank you for this new beginning and bringing me to the family of God. For all of us that we would leave this place and whatever it is that we're facing in the circumstances, Lord, you work that joy unspeakable because we have you and you're with us traveling with us you're faithful to us bless everyone here now as we go our way in Jesus name amen God bless you